chapter 6, verses 15 to 18. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Well, <clears throat> we've been moving through the story, as you can see by the pictures on the wall, each one representing one of the chapters in the book, the story. I hold this up just in case there's somebody that has recently started attending the church here and is planning on staying through for a while anyways. We want to make sure that you have a, one copy of this for your family. So... If that is you, then I'd invite you to go to the information desk following the service, and uh, they will have one of those there for you. This week, we're in chapter 17 as we have been uh, moving along. And it's really quite interesting as you look at it. It hardly seems like, or, or it seems like we just sort of got started, but we're coming towards the end of the Old Testament section uh, of the Bible. Um, and, uh, and in some ways, it, it, it just seems like, uh, how do you take from Genesis through now, we're working out at Jeremiah and Second Chronicles and Ezekiel, how do you take that and form it all into life? Well, that's why we put it in part in a small Reader's Digest for portion, a condensed version called The Story, so you can get through it. But our hope and desire is that as you work your way through the story, that it will sort of prime the pump. And when we get finished this, that you will go back into your Bible and that you'll begin to read the full edition. Because there's so much more, even in that edition, that isn't getting covered uh, in this book, uh, the storybook. And then when it comes to our sermons, well, it even gets more condensed because there's no way that we can take all that, uh, there's no way that I can take all that's in chapter 17 and feed it to you this morning. Well, I could, but I might lose some friends, and you might start looking for other churches, right? But, um, so we're going we're to kind of narrow this thing down again this morning, and, and if you've been reading and following through in your book, you might be a little disappointed because... Well, I'm not going to touch on some of the things that perhaps sort of hit you in your read this week. Well, we're going to dive in. Last week, we looked at the nation of Israel being deported to Assyria. Uh, again, not, not to bore you with these, these facts going back over them all the time, but you do remember that there was this nation called Israel. The first king was Saul, the second king was David, and the third king was Solomon. And after Solomon died, the nation went into turmoil, and it got divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel, and the lower king, or the southern nation, is called Judah. 
And sometimes it gets kind of confusing when even reading through the Bible because I think sometimes it calls Judah Israel. I don't know. It gets a little confusing. But there is this separation. And last week, uh, Pastor uh, Steve took us through the fall of Israel. That was after Solomon died and the nation split, Israel had a lifespan of about 2,003 years. And what's interesting in that lifespan is though they had 19 kings, not one of them did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's the continuing message as you read through, particularly First and Second Chronicles or First and Second Kings. You keep hearing this: that this king came and and he didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And it's kind of interesting that all that that nation could squeeze out of their existence was 203 years. I think the United States has been in existence longer than that, hasn't it? Historians, please. I think we're past that in their whatever, and. Um, and then when we come to the nation of Judah that we're going to focus in a bit on this morning, we discover that they had an existence of 343 years. Now, I think the reason is they're kings. I think that there was something rather significant. Twelve kings of Judah did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. This is, this is Pastor Steve's math from last week. Nine, eight kings, nine kings did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But what's really interesting is that the, the bad kings averaged about 11 years in reign, whereas the righteous kings averaged about 33 years of reign out of their kingdoms, or out of their, out of their, out of their reigns. And that meant that Judah lived three times more in a context of righteousness, being led by righteous kings, then they were led by those who did not follow after the heart of God. There's something to be said about us focusing on the way we live. There's something to be said that when we follow the ways of God, there are consequences that are far healthier than the consequences one would experience when they don't follow the ways of the Lord. And then the question is, how do we refine all of that? Well... You're going to learn that as you read through the Bible and you ask God to show you. Because our hearts are very, very important elements in our relationship and our connection with God. The choices that we make. I like the way John puts it in one of his epistles. He says that if, if you love God, you obey his commandments. There's a direct correlation between the choices we make and our ultimate expressions of love towards God. And so what we learn is, it's not whether I tell Jesus I like him or love him, it's whether I serve him in, uh, in and through my life. There becomes the defining factor. At least that's how we see it when we try to compare these two uh, nations, um, Israel and Judah. Well, today, as I said, we're coming to chapter 17. It's, it's a time for Judah now to hear God's plan in light of their growing persistence of moving away from God. Hezekiah was their final righteous king. Then Hezekiah dies, and Manasseh, his son, takes over. Just a young guy, 20-something. All these kings were really young taking over. 
It might be something in that. But Hezekiah dies. Manasseh takes over. Now, you would think that Manasseh, living under the reign and rule of his father's house, would have figured this one out. When you do what is right, your nation is blessed. But Manasseh, as soon as he gets into reign, well, at least at some point fairly quickly, we read that in and throughout his reign, he does not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. As a result of that, consequences became very serious for Manasseh. Babylon moves in, uh, captures Manasseh, takes Manasseh back into Babylon. The nation hasn't fallen yet, but Manasseh is taken off, is taken to Babylon. And what is interesting is that Manasseh, in that context, repents. In Babylon, he realizes the error of his ways and he turns his heart back to God and the king of Babylon then sends Manasseh back home. And there he reigns for a little short period of time. His son Ammon, he's the next guy that's going to come on the scene here, he doesn't get it neither. And from that point on, the king's short reigns from then on just lead the nation farther and farther away from God. There's the history. That's the picture that we're looking at. Here's how it's recorded in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 15 to 16. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, so he's talking, he, this is, this is um, uh, speaking about the prophets who had spoken into these nations and the good rulers that had followed behind them, The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word through his messengers, the prophets, again and again. Oh, the patience of God here. Because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. God had fallen in love with these people. As a matter of fact, as as Laurie said in, in the worship session, for God so loved the world. We have to see that picture as we go through this because it's very easy for us to think that God's love stopped when we walked through the door and the doors were closed and here we sit as followers of Jesus and, and we're the loved ones. No, your neighbor, my friend, is loved by Jesus. Your fellow workers are loved by Jesus. But anyways, they had, God had this pity on these people who couldn't get it right. Over and over again, they were, they, they were hard-headed. They refused to see. They would not repent. And yet he doesn't just come along and whip them off the page. He, he doesn't. He cares for these people. And he cares for his dwelling place. Dwelling place is Jerusalem, which housed the temple which housed this thing called the Holy of Holies that represented to the whole world the presence of God. He loved it. But, verse 16, they mocked God's messengers, the prophets, despised his words, God's words, not the words of the prophet. They were, but this was God's words coming through the prophets. They despised God's words, his words, and scoffed at his prophets until... The wrath of the Lord was aroused against the people, and there was no remedy. What a sorry conclusion when there was a possibility of so much hope. And yet God has to finally move in. We're going to chat about that a bit this morning. I mean, can you imagine when you get to the place where the God of the universe says, I've done all I can to help you, and there's only one remedy to this problem. 
one remedy. And the remedy is judgment. Judgment's a hard word for us to figure out. We take the word judgment and we totally equate it with the word punishment. Well, it is. I mean, it is a sense of being punished. God disciplines, and in that context is a sense of punishment. God disciplines those he loves. So there's an element of punishment here. But there's a far bigger overarching understanding of the idea of judgment. I like what Ray Steadman did in his commentary on Jeremiah. And he entitled one of the chapters, he said, Judgment, God's Last Act of Love. It isn't about him whacking us around because we're not getting it. It's not because he wants to beat us up and throw us away because, well, we've just made such a mess of everything. What's the point of keeping you around? No, when God brings in his judgment, he wants to make us very clear this is his gift to us because he's hoping that in the final analysis, we'll finally get it. That's what he's hoping with the nation of Judah. That's what he hoped with the nation of Israel, that when he brings us to that point, we might have finally the aha moment where we said, ah, I have not gotten this, have I? God, you see, was trying to implant a vision of a kingdom that would come through faith, ultimately through his Messiah, but he wanted this little nation to be this vision, this, this kingdom where the faith that one could have in God would come shining through so that the, the nations around them would see something dramatically different in this little country, these people. One that would ultimately get best described in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It kind of comes to that point. Jesus has been kind of saying, or the prophets, and God has been saying this throughout the Old Testaments. But when we get to the chapter, chapter of Matthew, the chapters of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, I would encourage you to take this little read and get the synopsis on the kingdom. It's this brief little, uh, little description of how God wants his people to be the people of God. Anyways... God wanted these people to get it, and they just weren't. But if Judah got away with this kind of living, it would have sent the wrong message, not only to Judah, but to all the surrounding nations around them of what God's love and character was like. You see, that's the strong message that comes to us as a church. It's not that we have asked Jesus to forgive us of our sins, and not just that we rejoice in the fact that he has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And not just the fact that we have a hope in eternity called heaven. No, the work that, the king, or the, the work that Jesus wants to do for his kingdom is to build together a holy people so that the people around us will see something distinctly different. So that we would be the light that the world goes around and says, hmm... That's the purpose. We're going to talk a bit about that in a minute too. But See, one of the prophets God raised up in the southern kingdom was a man named Ezekiel. I wish we had time to talk about the Ezekiel part of the story, but we're not going to. But in Ezekiel 36.23, as Ezekiel tells the people of Judah, after you have experienced, this is what Ezekiel's wanting, after they have experienced God's discipline, 
Because God doesn't discipline and throw away and forget. God disciplines and keeps his arms open wide with the hope that they're going to return to him, like in the case of Manasseh. So that God must discipline. He does so with a distinct purpose. That's what he wants. He wants us to look back at what God has done and that the surrounding nations would see his glory. Here's what he says. This is verse 23, Ezekiel 36. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when I am... Now, here's, here's our line for us this morning out of this passage. When I am proved holy through you before their eyes. There's the mandate. That's the call right there. The sovereign Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. So what do we mean by holy? Sometimes I think we think of that sort of holier-than-thou attitude. It's kind of a snobby sort of attitude, right? Kind of living up to something. That little better-than-you kind of attitude. Please get rid of that idea. Holy is a much more precious word than that. Holy means to prove that there is no God but God. When we talk about a holy God, we are distinctly saying to everyone around us through our lives, through our words, that there is only one God to serve. Now, we think, well, that's easy because we don't serve other gods. Well, we can serve many other gods. And when those other attractions, whatever they should be in our individual lives, whenever those attractions can become our security, can become our power, can become the thing that we're placing our hope in, then we have just fallen into the same problem as the nation of Judah and Israel fell into. We are worshiping idols. It's a little harder for us to define because we live in a culture and a religious culture, and even within a church culture, that often protects the idea of, well, helps to defend some of our idols. Let's put it that way. We, we, we do have a distorted view around finances, biblically speaking. We do have a distorted view around relationships, scripturally speaking. We have found our security and our pleasure in things that are not specifically the things of God's word. We do it. It's part of the challenge of living in a fallen world and the enticements that come with it and the lusts of the eye and, 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 and we see it and it's pleasurable and we slip in and it's fun and we're, enjoy excuse me, and we're enjoying it. And it is good to have all this stuff, and yet it takes our eyes off of what is ultimately God. It's subtle, friends, and it calls us into this slippery little world that distracts us from the holiness of God. Holiness simply meaning that there is no other God beyond our God. And we really have to get on our knees to sort this one out, I think. This is something we're going to find in our quiet time when we ask God to really help clarify the idols in our lives because they are going to be to our destruction. 
at some level. I'm not saying they're going to send you to hell. I'm not necessarily saying that. I don't know how committed you are to them and what you've done with God in your life and all that. I am saying that you can't serve two masters because you're going to like one better than the other. It's just always the case. You'll defend one over the other. It's always the case. And so there's a need for us to sort this out. And it is my deep conviction that that sorting can only come out on our knees, as it were, where God begins to pinpoint the little areas that we have found our security, our hope, our power, our lights, our pleasures. It's a hard call. And yet, that's the voice that the prophet kept bringing, prophets kept bringing into the nation of Israel, warning them, warning them, warning them, and yet they had become so comfortable with lifestyles that provided certain levels of, of whatever, that's not listed all again, that we can just kind of hunker down. And then the great sin of Judah was they went to their hills and worshipped their idols and then came to church on Saturday and tried to worship a God. They called him his God. They were the God people of God. And they tried to bring this mixture together and it became very distasteful in the mouth of God. Because you can't serve both. Holiness, a holy God means there is no other God but that God. He's above all. Holiness means that in this holy God, that's no other God, means that he's majestic. Do we feel that word? Do we really know the, the sense, the meaning, the power of stepping into the presence of a God that is majestic? Do, 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 do we go to our, our times with him and, and walk away in a sense with, wow, a few goosebumps happening when you step into the presence of someone who is majestic, and then you throw in the word awesome, awesome in a far bigger way than the ways that we use it around here, because he is an awesome God. It's, it's no wonder he could feel safe with saying, why don't you just give me your all? Why don't, why don't you surrender everything to me? Because he knows his majesty. He knows his awesomeness. He knows his glory. He knows his ability of working wonders. He knows that he can take you farther into places that your bank accounts, your pleasures, the, the things that we do in this world could ever, ever take us. He wants to walk us on a journey that is absolutely amazing because he's majestic and he's awesome and he's filled with glory and, 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 and he's wonderful. You see, don't, don't shrink these words down. Allow these words to just kind of simmer in your soul because they're amazing words that I think some ways we have, we have brought down to a, a lower common denominator than it should ever have been. He's so good. He's good. To be holy on our part, here's a definition. This is a dictionary definition, all right? This isn't even all the Bible. This is, somebody's, this is somebody's dictionary, right? They wrote it down, came to the word holy, and we've got to come up with a definition for that. Here's what the dictionary says. To be holy is to be different, distinct, unique. You see, God's desire for creating something called his people and putting them into a nation was so that they would get the attention of the nations around them. 
he, he planted us, he planted them there so that when the world around them was struggling and wasn't getting meaning and, and, and things were not going as they should and falling apart and it was getting dark, they had this light that they could look to called God's people, the nation of Israel. And they would look over there and they'd say, that's it. They got something. They got something that's majestic and awesome and amazing. And they're different. Friends, that's what we're called to be as the church. The nation of Israel has gone its way. It'll come back. Well, it has come back. And God still loves those people in special ways. No other distinct nation has been separated for 2,000 years and, and somehow kept their identity. And then 2,000, almost 2,000 years later, they come back and are given home again. That's grace. That's another sermon. He loves them, but he has, at this point in time, in history, called you and me together to be his people, a holy people, so that we would understand our place in the world. So when the pagan nations around us look into our worlds, they see something holy, holy. It's not snobby, holy, wonderful full of compassion and grace, full of love and mercy. That all fits into the word holy as well. Well, the express purpose of God's relationship with Israel was to demonstrate that he's the one true God and wants all people to have a relationship with him. That's the desire. For God so loved the world. Please don't think that we have some sort of special little piece of God's love. His heart's breaking for my next door neighbor. He, he wants the people that we worked with and are still keeping some connections with. He, he loves them. Because he told us that he wills that none, N-O-N-E, should perish. None. He hasn't thrown anybody away. His grace is extended across time. He gave Israel 208 years. He gave uh, Judah 434 years. His own people, he gave them that time, giving them opportunity, opportunity, opportunity after opportunity. He gave them the message of God over and over and over again. He invited them back in over and over again. He doesn't quit on us. Not one of us here is 208 years old. And if you're struggling right now, I want you to know that the grace of God is chasing you. I want you to know that no matter where your struggle is in this very moment, he has not given up on you. He may come along and give you a swat in the bottom once in a while. But why? Because judgment is God's last act of love. Whoop, I need some attention here. You need to get it. <clears throat> you see, grace doesn't mean much if we haven't been exposed to the raw truth of life without God. The enemy wants to make our life so comfortable. He doesn't do a very good job at it, let me tell you. Well, you know that. But he wants to make our life so comfortable that we don't need this thing called amazing grace. He wants us to just to find a certain level 
you know, that we can kind of snuggle down into and kind of live our life out a bit without too many, well, too many expectations. You just kind of go get through. That, that's where he wants to settle us in at. But when we begin to see that balance of life tip, and we begin to feel the slide, the draw of something that feels much darker than we'd ever want, when we begin to feel that going down, I want you to know this simple truth. That's when grace kicks in. That's when we begin to aware, become aware of this desperate need we need for somebody who is holy. No other God. Nobody else can do it. Nothing we have chosen to try to become a, a sort of a, a, a substitute. It's not, it's not going to work. Grace is going to bring us back into the heart of Father God every time we submit to it. Every time. <clears throat> Let's take a bit of a... I'm going to slip off to the side a little bit here. God called a man by the name of Jeremiah. Jeremiah's an ordinary guy. He's about 20 years of age. Nothing, we don't, we don't get any sense that he's got anything special attached to him. He, he, he's just an ordinary guy. But God has a plan for him. And the plan for him is this. Well, here, here's Jeremiah's call. It's, it's found in Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 to 5. It goes this way. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. What an amazing call brought into a life. And we say, well, that, that's Jeremiah. He's the prophet. You know, he's going to write a book of the Bible. He's going to write two books of the Bible. And one after his name. The other one's called Lamentations. And, and he's kind of special. So, so God's kind of picked him out, cherry-picked him out, and gives him the call. And he sends him off, and, and he says great things. He said, even before I formed you in the womb, before biology even had a chance to take over, I had formed you in my mind. I had a particular purpose for you. And your particular purpose is going to be a prophet. I'm going to send you off as a prophet. And before you were born, I made that choice. I mean, do you get that? God's, God's coming alongside of Jeremiah, and God is saying, I knew you, and even before I formed you in your mother's womb, I had a job for you to do. I'm setting you apart to be something specific for the kingdom of God, and your title is going to be prophet. And Jeremiah, I have a role for you to play, but the role is not just that you're a prophet. The role is that you're a piece in the unfolding story. It's not just that I'm going to pull you out and give you a job and write a book about it. No, I, I want to call you, bring you in, and you're going to become part of the story. He's going to call you outward. That's somewhat overwhelming. But the reality is this. This is true of every single person sitting in this room today. This, this is the glory part of the story. We, we get the same message, the same call in Ephesians chapter 2, 10. 
I hope you got good memories because you need to write this one on your card, a card, a piece of paper, Ephesians 2.10. You need to glue it to a mirror. You need to put it in your Bible wherever you're having your devotions. This needs to become a defining factor in all of our lives. Ephesians 2.10. Say it with me. Ephesians 2.10. Take it home with you. It's my gift. Well, Jesus gave it to you. See, the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, and Paul said, not just to the leaders of the church in this passage, trust me, this isn't about the guys that look like they're the important ones. Um, this, This little letter he wrote to the entire church, these words, because we have a mission to do. Now, I want you to listen to these words. This is Paul's words. These are God's words spoken through Paul. For we are God's workmanship. That's the first little piece we got to land on. You didn't just come into existence. You weren't just a person, a a statistic that's going to add to the world's population. You weren't. Not one of you. None of you. You came into this world, and even before the biology got together, like I said, even before then, I want you to know God was already molding you. Every one of us. No exception. I want you to know this is true of your next-door neighbor, too. That's why we have to tell them about Jesus so they can get this thing unfolded for them as well. We don't just tell our neighbor about Jesus so they can get their sins forgiven and feel better and go to heaven. We need to help them crack this mystery that God has something for them to accomplish in the unfolding story. That's That's the whole world. Anyways, you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There's a mystery here that I don't know that I fully understand. But friends, our relationship isn't just to our parents. Our relationship just isn't to our immediate family. This thing that we were brought into was brought into a life directly connected to Jesus Christ. Why? Because we're not going to be able to accomplish what he has asked us to accomplish in the unfolding of the story if we are just a happy family unit. We're going to find strength there. We're going to find encouragement there. We're going to find the the important ingredients of life and all that sort of stuff. But I want you to know that you were born into Christ Jesus. It is him who wants to operate and create and do the things in, 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 in our lives that only he can accomplish. We are his workmanship in Christ Jesus to do good works. I don't like that little phrase. Sorry, Paul. Uh, because that to do good works sounds like we're just supposed to be kind and nice and friendly. To, the do, to, the, to do good works here means that God wants to take the stuff that he has been working in you that is defined by Jesus Christ and it is your spiritual gift. Every one of us here has been designed. We're a workmanship. We're a project. We're not just some sort of neutral blob. But when God began, before you were born, began to mold you, he began to put in specifics into your world. He began to plant little things in your world that's going to define the way your life is called to unfold. The scriptures call them our spiritual gifts. Some of it's our strengths. He, he puts those in. He understands some of our weaknesses in all of this. But he, our, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do the thing that he designed us to do. Here's a good way of reading it. 
which God prepared in advance for us to do. That's the beauty of what God is longing to do in our lives. Unfold or uncover or peel back and give to us or help us to understand the freedom of his design for us. Because when we get that, then it's no longer about you and me. It's number one, it's about God. We have to get that one in our heads. But this is about something called the church. I haven't been given a spiritual gift so that I can go off and look really good about what God has designed me for. God gave me a spiritual gift so I could fit into your spiritual gift. So that our design becomes a smooth working machine. So we began to fit together. We all of a sudden began to realize that we have a power that could never be exhibited or, or, or demonstrated or lived out in any, other way, in any other way apart from us, the collective church. It's always about the church. That's what we're called into. That's where, that's where the, the, the majesty and the mystery of who God is is going to be seen. When this church, with the other churches, begin to light a blazing flame, it's going to change things, folks. And it's not going to happen because I have a dream. It's going to happen because God can do more than we dream, ask, or imagine. It's going to happen because we have discovered that there's a greater God than the things that we have chosen to slip into. That there's a God of the universe that's going to take us and move us towards a mission that far exceeds anything that we could put together on our, on our own. There's so much hope in this story that when Jeremiah finally... Um, Oh, it's a long story. He's in Egypt now. He's coming to the end of his life. The things that he had prayed for and talked about never happened. They all fell apart. If anybody wanted to find his life, they'd probably call him a failure because nothing worked that he asked for. It didn't. But God warned him that that was the case. But when he got into Egypt and he looks back over his life, a life of misery, as a matter of fact, he was probably forced into Egypt Life was so uncomfortable for him there that records suggest that he was stoned to death in Egypt. But he wrote this. It's called the Book of Lamentations. It was written in that time period. But here's what he said. It comes out of Lamentations. Oh, I didn't give you the chapter. Anyways, you're going to know the passage. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Was it in the successes of his life? No. Something far bigger is going on here than what he was able to accomplish. Yet this I call to mind, looking over my shoulder, looking back, this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. The graciousness of God is, is absolutely, I don't have words for it. I'm going to say absolutely amazing. Now, now, you, now somehow you've got to multiply that by about a billion. Because the love of God is so, well, I like his word, is so consuming. 
The love of God is like this fire that burns and it begins to deal with the junk in our lives and we begin to see life for what it really is because the God, love of God burns off, consumes off all the, the stuff and the junk and we begin to see more clearly than we ever saw before. He comes to the end of his life, he looks back at a potential or, or looks at a life that looks like a life of failure and he says, I have hope because the love because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions. Do you know this? Who knows this passage? Never fails. You ready for this? They are new every morning. Great. Oh, gosh. Great. Great is your faithfulness. That's our God. Nothing can shrink him down. Nothing can take away from who he is because there is no other God like him. And he lands in Hillcrest Church and he puts his arms out regardless of our struggles or where we're going or how we think we have failed or, or, or whatever. And he, he puts his arms around us and he gives us a hug and a love that is so all-encompassing that that's what we want to do is to serve him. Morning's coming, and God's compassions never end. That's the end of the story. No, that's the beginning of the story. No, that's the center of the story. It's it all, isn't it? It's where God moves along and takes us where only he can take us. And we're reminded God is faithful and will never abandon us. Well, that's all I have to say this morning. I, I wonder what God has to say this morning. I guess that's the big one, isn't it, eh? Is in there when we were praying before the service, and, and, and I'm the preacher, so I'm expected to pray. <laughs> isn't it funny? Crazy. Anyways. I'm thinking, okay, what do I have to say? I, I hate to let you into my head this way, but it's not just what do I have to say. What do I have to say that's profound? Ego, pride. Oh, you're fighting it all the time, aren't you? But here's what God said to me. I think it was God because I don't think I would have thought of this. He said, Dave, you're bringing your expectations into a service. I want you to know that just about every minister that stands in this pulpit is really hoping and longing that after he's put all his prep into it and after he has preached it all, that it's going to have some kind of reaction. I think that's where we're all kind of hoping. But he said, I want you to drop your expectations because they will change nobody this morning. There isn't a word big enough to reach the heart of people. I can do more than you Ask or imagine. So I say, not what did Dave say to you this morning. I'm just curious as to what God is saying. Because he is saying. He is speaking. Because his mercies are new. His, great is his faithfulness. He's got something for each of us so that we can pull together a collective message that is going to change the city of Moose Jaw. Because that's the desire of his heart. Do I hear anything on that one? sing a song. I don't want us to think of this as an altar call per se. I wonder if this is a call to solidarity. 
This isn't to prove that Dave's message was good and so he got some people to come forward. I'm wondering if you would just kind of join us, not me, join us. What if we squeezed into the front of this rather than spread out in our pew in our individual safe places? But we got so tight that we had to rub shoulders with each other in this congregation. We began to realize that this is a unit that cannot be separated. That we are the church of Jesus Christ that must, if we're going to have any kind of effect, come together. And I'm thinking the best picture that I could get as I'm thinking here this morning is for us just to come up to the front and here's where we're going to sing the song. Shoulder to shoulder. Arm in arm if you need to. But we're going to come because we have got to do this together. No more alone stuff. Because that's what God has called us to. Would you like to do that? Would you? Come on up and sing. This is kind of like family, but...